Welcome to Center Stage with international opera star Pamela Kuhn. And now, here is your host, Pamela Kuhn. Good morning, everyone, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. You know, a few weeks ago, I wandered into the Stamford restaurant called Prime. It's on the water, loaded with glass windows and doors, aesthetically my perfect kind of place, and, as it turned out, a great eatery to have a wonderful brunch. The vantage point can't be beat looking out over the boats. But there was more going for that restaurant that day than the ambiance. Prime had a smooth singer and jazz combo. They were perfect, not too loud, perfect dinner-type jazz. We sat down, and I was immediately taken by the singer with the combo. He had a silky bass baritone voice that reminded me of Barry White meets Nat King Cole by way of Billy Eckstein. Every sound of his was rich with an elegance and delivery that I admired. Being a singer myself, I am not often wowed by other voices, but when I am, it's enough to bring, bring my full attention to the scene. And he had blue eyes that could melt a person's heart. I wasted no time in introducing myself during his break. I couldn't wait to talk to this man and get to know more about this crooner. All I could think of was this restaurant had a winner on their hands. This singer's name is Bob Stewart, a name I want you to remember right now, folks, because you will hear more of him. And he is with me right now to share his interesting story and how he came to be on stage at Prime Restaurant and captured our hearts. Good morning, Bob, and welcome to Center Stage. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Your speaking voice tells it all, Bob, you know. It's beautiful. Well, thank you. And, you know, I always say to all of my singing students that that singing is an extension of speech, so we know you've got it all ready, yeah? Well, it's uh, it comes in handy in storytelling, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> and you are a storyteller, I've come to find out. Yes, I am. You've, you've had quite a history. And, and the thing I want my listeners to know right now, everybody, is that Bob Stewart has only been singing for the last six years. But boy, does he have a history of life that he can put into his songs. Bob, where do you come from? Well, I was actually born in Florence, Italy, um, my father was an American serviceman uh, serving in World War II. We met my mother there. I was born there. My mother and I came over here on the Liberty ship where we reunited with my father, and we wound up living in Harlem in the South Bronx, which is where I grew up. Uh, my father was uh, black and American Indian, and uh, he didn't want us growing up with uh, any disadvantage of having an accent. So my mother and he, he spoke uh, Ita uh, fluent Italian, mm -hmm. but my mother and he decided not to speak Italian in the house so that we would grow up not having any Italian uh, accent. We would just grow up as, as American with American accents. And uh, so that's how I don't happen to have an Italian <laughs> accent today. But um, I grew up in Harlem in the South Bronx, uh, uh, kind of interesting, when I was a little boy, uh, I'd be out with my dad, and uh, some of his friends would say, you're going to be a truck driver like your father? And I used to always say, nope. And I said, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? I used to say, a scientist and a businessman. And interestingly enough, that's event eventually what I uh, became. Uh, 
sound, sounds like a wild combination, but that's exactly what I eventually became. Wow. So what was your first job? My first job, my first regular job was working as a stock boy in a department store. And uh, I parlayed that into becoming a cashier. And um, then I parlayed that into working for a sociological magazine as a shipping clerk. And uh, I wound up parlaying that into uh, becoming an a indexer for the magazine, which would allow me to uh, get a fuller understanding of all of the material. The magazine dealt with uh, all of the ologies, sociology, psychology, anthropology, etc. And what they did was they uh, produced condensed versions of all of the latest literature published in those various fields. And so by working my way up to understand the concepts and terminology, I could eventually become an indexer, which really broadened my scope of understanding and laid a foundation for me later in life. I eventually wound up going to uh, college and getting degrees in psychology and social science. Wow. So this first job really ignited that that kind of zest for human behavior and, and psychology in you. Yeah, it did. And um, actually, when I first was uh, pursuing it in college, I was looking to gain an advantage over uh, my competition in the field of advertising. At that time, I was working for a, a company called Ogilvy & Mather, which was one of the top ad agencies in the country. I had worked previously for J.C. Penney, who had their own in-house advertising department and uh, really trained me in, in copywriting. And uh, then through an opportunity that came up as a result of a contact in the business, I wound up going to Ogilvy, and I worked there throughout the rest of my college. I was going to college on the GI Bill full-time at night while working full-time during the day in advertising. And uh, my idea was to uh, have a greater understanding of the motivational dynamics that was behind consumer uh, behavior uh, by understanding the, the workings of the individual mind within the context of the society and or culture that it was operating in. Wow. You did become that scientist, didn't you? Yeah. Eventually, um, what wound up happening was I got recruited by a, a international consulting firm, um, who was having trouble putting into place their operating systems uh, in these various companies around the country and around the world. The workforce had changed dramatically. They were no longer susceptible to functioning in Theory X operating environments. And um, so as soon as they put their systems into place and they left, the systems fell out of place. There was nothing wrong with the systems. It was just that they hadn't changed the behavior of the people who were responsible for its management. Mm -hmm. And so my job became uh, devising uh, psychometrics that would uh, allow us to gauge attitude and perception in regard to managing the, uh, the people who they managed and the systems of management that they utilize. And then from that information in conjunction with observations, 
uh, taken during the analysis process, we would devise a strategy whereby we would change the behaviors of these managers from frontline supervision all the way up to the top management team. Once that was done, the behaviors would be more in sync with the requirements of the use of the operating system. Mm -hmm. Good for you. I want to go back a little bit. That first job you had, Mm -hmm. how old were you? Um, The first job, I was Mm -hmm. 15. You were 15, Mm -hmm. and you were still going to school, Mm -hmm. living in the South Bronx, and you were trying to work yourself up and parlay one job into another. I'd call that pretty clever. I'd also call that really good on the communication skills side. (laughs) I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that you're a singer out of all of this. Well, yeah, I I just got to tell you this one interesting (laughs) story. When I was in, I went to high school. my father was uh, trying to get me to hedge my bets, really. So he absolutely demanded that I go to a technical school called Samuel Gompers. He had to take a test to get in. It was kind of comparable at that time to, like, Brooklyn Tech. But I wouldn't have to travel as far. So I went in. He was fascinated with electronics. He thought it was going to be the f- thing of the future. I went in and immediately hated electronics. I would do just <laughs> enough to pass. When I graduated, they sent me on a job interview, and um, it was for a hospital equipment manufacturer called, well, I won't mention his name. At any rate, they were hiring me as a technician on the end of the assembly line uh, who was doing various electrical tests to see if the equipment would pass muster. I uh, I was interviewed. I took a test. They hired me on the spot. They put me to work. I worked from probably 10 until uh, 12 noon, at which time my supervisor said, well, it's time to take a break. And I gave him the smock back, and I said, thank you very much. You don't have to send me the money. You will never see me again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. There was no way I could ever consider (laughs) sitting there on the end of a line (laughs) doing that for the rest of my life. That was just not going to be I love that. You were a young man who really knew his mind. (laughs) I knew I couldn't do that. (laughs) Wow. And so, you know, having your own consultancy firm eventually Mm. and doing quite well from the sound of it. Yeah, I I did very well. Oh, yeah. thank you very much. And But along the way, you started to drift into other lives, which I, I love this. So you dallied with film and acting for a while. Yes, I did. Periodically, there would be lulls in the business. And uh, during that period of time, something would always come up. I wound up uh, meeting a guy who was a writer and film producer. And he introduced he, – he was doing a film – and uh, one of the actors, they were flying in from Los Angeles to play this part of a police detective, got held up in a snowstorm in Chicago where he was supposed to change planes. And they had a very tight shooting schedule, so he asked me if I would sit in and do that role. And uh, when I did, he said, gee, you're better than the guy that we're sending for, and I wound (laughs) up doing the whole thing. So that was my introduction to film. Then I met a, another guy playing golf one day and wound up uh, pl- getting the role of Sergeant Waters in a soldier's play. We opened at the Stanford Center for the Arts and wound up doing the play. We set up a separate production company to do this play all over the uh, the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And so we did that for the next two years. And uh, one of the people who was affiliated with that play uh, uh introduced me to a guy who was doing a film uh, called uh, Hard Rock, 
and uh, I wound up playing the part of a judge, a featured part in the, the movie Hard Rock. And did you did you love all this world I mean, in comparison? It, to me, it was really fun. I mean, fun. Uh, my yeah. idea for my, I didn't want to be on the end of an assembly line, right? Testing right. equipment. You, you so just knew that. Didn't I just you? knew there were other things that I could do that I could have fun with and get paid for. Well, and to be a soldier, getting paid to portray a soldier, you had done a stint in Vietnam as well, hadn't I, you? I didn't go to Vietnam. I was in during that time. I was drafted in December of 1965, and I was in until December of 1967. And uh, fortunate for me, uh, I wound up spending the whole entire time at Fort Gordon, Georgia. It was kind of an interesting story because I hadn't been, because I was not born in this country. Um, I was supposed to go to officer candidate school, but in order to do that, you have to have a, a security clearance. And I guess they were doing the background check on my mm-hmm. security clearance, and I, it was 18 months until I had, until I got a class date for officer candidate school. By this time, I had already done 18 months, and I only had six months left. Mm-hmm. So the question was, do I go to officer candidate school after, for six months, at the end of which I come out a second lieutenant? and have to re-enlist in the Army mm. for an indeterminate period of time? Right. Or do I just stay in for my last six months and get the heck out? Obviously, you chose I, the <laughs> plan B, didn't plan you? B, I'm definitely. really glad you did. I'm really <laughs> glad too. you did. How did you get into singing? Um, I've always kind of been on the periphery of it. I've, one of my very close friends uh, was uh, Johnny Hartman, his nephew, and I, uh, Johnny was from Chicago. His nephew and I used to work together in, in retailing. And we became good friends. And he invited me over to Johnny's one night uh, to meet uh, him and his wife. And we had dinner, and they in, kind of adopted me into the family. After that, whenever Johnny was in town playing in New York, he would call me in and say, I'm going to be at such and such, you want to go? Or... I'm going to be playing at such and such place uh, tonight. If you ain't doing nothing, come on down. <laughs> and um, so I used to go, and we'd hang out afterwards, and I got to meet a lot of great people like Grady Tate, Oscar Brown Jr., McCoy Tyner, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I was just fascinated with it. I would never in a million years dreamed that I would eventually one day be in, be standing up in front of an audience doing some of the material Johnny actually Absolutely. did. Absolutely, But... Um, as long as I do it proud and do his memory proud then, mm-hmm. and people enjoy it, I'll keep doing it. Oh, I sure hope so. And Johnny Hartman being one of the great interpreters of the song, uh, the Billy Strayhorn song, Lush Life. That's my Which is also song. a favorite of yours, is isn't it? That's my favorite song. Very yes. complex mm-hmm. and beautiful number. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most difficult songs for musicians to yeah, do it because is. of all of the changes that uh, are involved in the song. Uh, As a vocalist, the song just touched a a chord deep within me, and um, I just love doing it. It's a great song. You know, Billy Strayhorn started to write that song when he was 16. I didn't know that. Yeah, and he he writes like one who had lived several lives, you know, really talking uh, about all the the dark side, really, Mm -hmm. of of hanging out and performing and and what you go through. Well, I think it's time for us to hear you, and, and let's hear Bob Stewart with the Bob Stewart Jazz Band, and this is Room with a View. I've got a room 
got a room with a view I've got a room I've got a room with a view I've got a house full of worries And a room with a Bob, where did you learn your sense of style in singing? Um, I guess more than anybody else, I'd have to credit Johnny Hartman. I mean, because what I I saw how relaxed he was up there. He he didn't go through any histrionics. He he didn't show any great emotion on his face or through his body language. He just sat up there and interpreted the song and uh, let the band behind him do what they do. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole thing was magical. And um, so more than anything, I kind of adopted his style. I just get up and sing the song and let the band do what they do. Now tell us the story of how you were discovered as a singer. Oh, I uh, I had, uh, it's funny, one of the guys that I was in the play with and I were at a mutual friend's opening of their uh, bar and uh, they happened to have karaoke that night. So my friend dared me to get up and sing, and I said, well, you know, if you do, I will. And <laughs> He got up, he did his song, and so I, he came back, he said, now it's your turn. And I did, and uh, I went up, and I did a Bill Withers piece, uh, I think it was Use Me, mm-hmm. and uh, the place went nuts. <laughs> so the woman who was doing the karaoke show, a lady named Justine Faith, who still does karaoke all over the Connecticut, New York area? Um, she was so taken. She said, "You know, you." She says, "You are you." She first she asked me if I was a professional. I said, "No." So she says, "It's amazing." She says, "You're really a good, great singer." So I said, "Well, thank you. I had no idea." <laughs> so after that, I would go to her shows periodically, and I would sing, and I'd have fun with. I'd try different songs and. Um, one night I was doing uh, a song down in New York at this uh, place in the Bronx, and uh, uh, these guys had a separate table all their own, and you could tell they were men of respect. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I finished, one of them calls me over to the table and invites me to sit down, and they started asking me about who I was and you know how I came to be singing, and we were talking, and then one of them says, Hey, kid, you know, you're way too good to be doing this karaoke stuff. If we could uh, uh, put a show together for you, would you do it? I says, yeah, sure, not thinking they were serious. And uh, so I gave them my contact information. About two weeks later, I got a phone call. Hey, kid, we got the venue. We got the band. What you got to do is call the band leader and give them your song list. And I go, what's a song list? (laughs) (laughs) And 
I called the band leader, wound up giving, telling him what songs I was going to do, and we figured out the keys on yep. the phone, and the rest was history. You, was wait, you figured the keys out on, on the, the phone? phone? Yes, with the band leader, right. And you really didn't have an I idea. I had no idea what keys <laughs> I was singing these songs in. <laughs> so you, you told them you, you had a low voice and, and no, that's what he, they went with? he said, sing me a few bars. I'd <gasps> sing him the bars and then he'd say, oh, that's B flat. Okay, it's B flat. It's good with me. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> so what was your first gig? My first gig was at a place called Willie's Steakhouse in the Bronx. Um and uh, God, you came full circle. We wound you up. Start out in the Bronx. We wound up, up doing Willies for the next four or five years. Really? Every month, did a show. Willies was kind of like a mecca for Afro-Cuban jazz. It was really right. famous for its Latin music and its uh, Puerto Rican type oh, cuisine. Great dance music, yeah. And uh, <laughs> we were the only American. We were the only jazz group that was featured at Willies. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, the owner, may he rest in peace, thought we were great, and he loved having us there. And so we were there for the next five years. So were you still working as a consultant at this time? Um, on and off, yes. Mm-hmm. But you were being led more towards making music. Well, you know, the consulting business had gone through some significant change. Um, as you know, manufacturing in America has declined dramatically. And uh, although we did all kinds of work, there was the, the, the work that kind of tided us over was in manufacturing, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, since the manufacturing base began to erode, that meant there were less and less opportunities mm-hmm. to generate the kind of productivity improvements that we were focused mm-hmm. upon delivering. Mm-hmm. And so the competition for what was available as work became very intense. And getting a new client became really a problem. Really difficult, yeah. It was because, you know, in our business, what you're selling them is a result, and mm-hmm. you can't measure that. You can, you can measure the result, but you, I can't. there's nothing I can hold up and say, look how good. Like if I was making a car, I could say, look how wonderful my car is, how beautiful the engine is, this right. and that. But when you're delivering a, a, a result, there's nothing for them to see. Right. They right, have right, to right. believe in you and your ability to do what it is that you say you can do. But but now and you're you're delivering a result in in singing, which is pretty fantastic. We always did in consulting too. Um, for the whole time that I was doing this on uh, on my own. That was seven years in Mexico, and then the rest of the time in the United States and Canada and Europe. I never had one project that didn't deliver the results, and uh, we didn't have one major, one failure. So what what we, I never had a salesman, Hmm. ever, in all that time. Hmm. We got all our business through repeats and referrals from existing clients. Congratulations. So it was... It was challenging work, but it, the most gratifying part of the work was being able to track and measure the result. Sure. Look at a company sure. and say, here's what your current level of performance is. Mm-hmm. Here's what it should be. Within six months to a year, we're going to get you to this point. It's going to be worth X number of dollars on your bottom line and then make it actually happen. Good for you. Yeah. Well, singing is kind of similar because as I go to these uh, – go to the various club owners and restaurant owners, mm-hmm. 
I haven't gone to a lot of them, but the places that we've been engaged have been in, because I made the contact. And I would have the same kind of uh, discussion. Uh, you know, I have a following. We can put bodies in the seats. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm sure right. that your existing customers are going to love what we do. It's a very classy routine. And um, we'd like to work for you. And they hire us and... From that point on, we usually wound up doing multiple shows at that, those locations. I've got to tell you right now that it's, it's really odd when I get so excited about a singer as I did with your voice. And in the restaurant prime, you've added this, this aura of, of grace and, and beauty, I, I have to say. Well, the, the music is really beautiful, Bob Stewart. Thank you so you're, much. And you're a very fine, natural singer, which is also, it's not unusual, but it is unusual when you can stay a natural and, and keep that beauty, which you've done. In fact, I have a feeling it's probably bettered itself over the years. Um, so good for you. Um, and you're at Prime Restaurant every Sunday. Every Sunday from 12 to 3. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you've got your combo, your jazz combo. Yes. When, at Prime and uh, some of the other locations, I work with uh, various musicians, usually uh, a drummer, a guitarist, and or a bass, um, or uh, a piano. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Changing up the the combos changes the dynamics of the music. So That's sometimes right. it's more real jazz, more jazz oriented. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's more jazz pop oriented. But in each case, and, you know, people ask me which one do you prefer doing. I, I love them both. It's just two different. I bet styles. you do. Yeah. Well, I can tell you right now, I love your sound, well, and you. I would <laughs> urge everyone listening out there to get yourselves down to Prime in Stamford, and it's a wonderful restaurant at 78 Southfield Avenue. Uh, you can actually dock your boat there if you want to pay a mooring fee and just come up and, and go to dinner as long as you're well-dressed. And you're going to see the best-dressed person in the room is the singer, Bob Stewart. <laughs> and, Bob, I, I want to well, thank you. Well, if they you. do come, I hope they come up and introduce themselves. Of course they will. Of course they, they will. Oh, I heard you, and I had to go back a second time. <laughs> um, I want to give us a chance to go out with your music. I just want to say thank you for coming to join yeah. us on Center Stage. And thank I wish you, so you all the best. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm sure you're going to have another life after this because you've had so many, and good luck to you. That's Bob Stewart, folks. And now you're going to hear Bob Stewart and his jazz band with Summer Wind. A 
umbrella sky Then softer than a pipe of man One day it called you And I lost you, lost you to the summer wind 